This is Rabbi Sharon Brous, Rabbi Adi Kar, where we're dedicated to reinvigorating Jewish community, ritual, and learning, all while laying the foundation for a just and loving society. You're listening to Ikar's podcast, where you can hear our sermons from Shabbat and holidays, our teachings, our guest speakers, basically anything we think worth hearing that we can capture and stream, you can listen to right here. The whole Megillah. I mean, literally the whole Megillah. So thank you so much for being with us. Shabbat Shalom. The edict was written and sealed and sent throughout the kingdom. On the 13th day of the month of Adar, Jews, young and old, children and women were to be exterminated. Achashverosh and Haman, they sat down for a drink. While Mordechai tore his clothes, dressed in sackcloths and ashes, and went to the public square to weep loudly and bitterly. As word spread, the mourning turned collective, Jews emerging from their homes in public displays of grief, fasting, and wailing. Esther is oblivious, detached from her people and trapped by the palace walls in both directions, unable to comprehend the suffering of her people in the courtyard and seemingly unaware of the dangerous plans being formulated on the inside. When she hears from the maids about Mordechai's plight, she responds by sending new garments, a case of misplaced distress, anxious about his garments and not the existential threat to her people. Surely she knows what sackcloth and ash represent, but opts instead to reply solely with window dressing. Back and forth, Mordechai and Esther send messages to each other, pleading with her to intervene, refusing due to the risk of entering the king's domain uninvited until finally Mordechai's pleading breaks through the destiny moment, the crucial turning point of our story, where Esther understands that the cost of keeping silent is too high, too much to bear, too irresponsible. She sends word back to Mordechai, gather the Jews of Shushan and fast for three days in preparation for the work ahead. Of course, it's the awakening of conscience that defines the significance of this scene, but let's linger for a moment on the crucial detail of the fasting, because it stands in stark contrast to the leading impulse of Purim. You see, Purim, both in its narrative and its observance, seems to live predominantly not in fasting, but in feasting not in reflective solemnity, but in an outward expression of joy. There are 10 banquets in the story of Esther. The book opens with two debaucherous parties in the palace, one for the inner circle and one for everyone else in the empire. There are banquets for Vashti and Esther, the celebratory drink that Haman and, Morda- and, and Ahasuerus toast following the murderous decree. Esther's strategic use of two banquets to expose Haman's plot, the feast celebrating Mordechai's promotion, and finally the two feasts of the Jews after they triumphed. Ten feasts in total. Purim is codified in the Megillah itself as Yom Mishteh Bechoshana Veshana, a day of feasting in perpetuity. And of course, that's how we think of Purim, how we try to experience Purim, a call to joy mixed with relief, varnished with silliness. 
And I really want to be there this Purim. I want to laugh and dance and party with you all. But I'm struggling right now. And I know many of you are too. I'm horrified and heartbroken by what's happening in Israel. Just this past week, two Israeli Jews' brothers, Hillel and Yagel Yaniv, were murdered as they were driving by a Palestinian gunman. In the words of their mother, Esti, instead of accompanying children to the wedding canopy, we need to bury them. And then, hours later, in an act of revenge against the Palestinian residents of Khwara, settlers set fire to homes and cars, murdering a Palestinian man and assaulting many others. The Israeli general in charge of troops in the West Bank said, and I quote, what happened in Khwara was a pogrom carried out by lawbreakers. Many of you have now seen the video captured from that evening of settlers pausing amidst the carnage to Davin Mariv, the night sky, a perimeter of burning buildings, a chorus of Jews chanting, What kind of God are they praying to? Nowhere in the Judaism that I dedicate my life to teaching does that prayer deserve an amen. Now I know there's a fuller story to tell here about the chain of events that lead to a shameful moment like this, about Jewish extremists with unprecedented political power and military backing, about the broader socio-political context that's also bringing hundreds of thousands of Israeli citizens into the streets to protest the unlawful and dangerous trajectory of this government. And we must have that conversation. And I thank our teacher, Rabbi Braus, for helping us find new language and paradigms to dig deeper into who we are and who we mustn't be. If you haven't yet listened to her sermon from a few weeks ago, Tears of Zion, please do. And Purim is three sunsets away. And I'm trying to move my heart to simcha, to mishteh, to joy and festivity, but it's feeling really hard. So I do what I've been taught to do. I look into our tradition for insight and for honesty. I live in the world and word of our tradition which teaches that everyone is obligated to read the words of the Megillah, hakol chayavim, in the language of Rambam. So important is this mitzvah, he continues, that it takes precedence over every other mitzvah. Priests neglect their service in the temple, and scholars forego their Torah study to come listen to the Megillah. There is nothing that takes priority over the reading of the Megillah except, and his words hit me with force, the burial of a corpse that has no one to take care of it. Bury the deceased first before listening to the Megillah. So I'm asking us to please pause and linger in grief before we get to Purim. Don't walk past it. 
The only road to real joy travels first through grief. And in fact, I think that our tradition has known this deep truth, applied to life and even specifically to Purim since the very beginning. And the backdrop of all of that feasting is fasting. First, it's the people who instinctively respond to the decree by wearing the clothing of mourning, taking to the streets and fasting. Esther, in turn, responds in her crucial moment by initiating a personal and collective fast three days long, the people joining her in solidarity. But then something very interesting happens. In the concluding verses of the Megillah, after the Jews are safe and victorious, when Purim is being codified as a festive day for generations to come, fasting gets codified as well. Esther institutes a day of fasting and crying out, which seemingly corresponds to the fasting she and the people did before she entered the king's chamber. In the story, Esther's fast happens well before the planned day of violence against the Jews. But when she codifies the fast, it isn't clear in the text of the Megillah when it should actually take place, which stands in stark contrast to the very specific date, the 14th of Adar, set in the Megillah for the festivities of Purim. So in come the rabbis who establish that the fast of Esther, Ta'anit Esther, happens on the 13th day of Adar, the day before Purim. Okay, that doesn't seem so radical. Until we remember what exactly happened in the story on the 13th of Adar. That was the day signed and sealed by the king's decree that the Jews were to be massacred, but instead with newfound power and permission to fight back, the Jews killed 75,510 Persians on the 13th of Adar. This staggering death toll can only be understood, I believe, as an excessively violent outburst by this Jewish community, a streak of violence no longer justified by the terms of self-defense, but rather a violence motivated by the hatred of the other. When the rabbis locate Ta'anit Esther on the very day of this violence, they are ultimately condemning it. And it's worth pointing out that the one other moment in our calendar that the rabbis insert a fast day before a holiday is what's known as Ta'anit Bichorot, observed the day before Passover. This fast day commemorates the 10th plague, when the angel of death swept through Egypt, killing every Egyptian firstborn, a night of excessive violence. Both fast days that the rabbis institute on the day before a holiday place us face to face with the unrestrained violence perpetrated in our name. Our tradition teaches us that these days cannot be lost to history. They can't be swept under the rug of our festive days, our stories of redemption and celebration. Stop to grieve the chapters of violence that stain our story. 
Fasting is both a tool for grief and also our tradition's way of saying, take a good look at who you are and who you're becoming. We know this most viscerally through the experience of Yom Kippur or Yom Kippurim, a day like Purim, as the rabbis like to say. Fasting is a vehicle for introspection and ultimately teshuva, course correction. And fasting is meaningless, our prophets remind us, if it isn't accompanied by genuine contrition and a recommitment to just behavior. Esther fasted because she woke up to the suffering around her, resolving to use her power differently. And the rabbis transposed this moral awakening onto the 13th of Adar, the day of violence. Their way of saying, Ta'anit Esther must become a day of tshuva, a day of reckoning with our own history of excessive violence, of seeking forgiveness and returning to who we're called to be. It is no accident that the liturgy of Ta'anit Esther includes Avinu Malkenu, linking again what we know to be true of Yom Kippur and what we must learn to actualize on this day. Avinu Malkenu, Chatanu Lefanecha. We have sinned in your presence. Avinu Malkenu, Chatvenu Besefer Chaim Tov. Inscribe us in the book of life. The only way to Purim is through Ta'anit Esther. So it starts at dawn on Monday morning. A day-long journey until nightfall brings the possibility of celebration. This year especially, I encourage us to take this day seriously, to linger in its prayers and potential. I invite you, please, to join me and our community at Morning Minion on Monday, where we can begin to honor the work this day summons us towards, a day of tshuva before a night of joy. Fasting before feasting. Shabbat shalom. Hi, it's Rabbi Brass again. Thank you so much for listening. Want more content like this? I hope you'll subscribe and please consider making a contribution to Ikar so we can continue to work toward the fulfillment of our mission to reanimate Jewish life, to embody moral courage, to nurture the spirit, and to work to decipher what it means to be a human being in the world today. Visit our website at ikar.org. That's I-K-A-R.org. And I hope to see you maybe even in person sometime soon. <laughs>